Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports and we talk with the author. This week's guest on the podcast is historian John Bloom of Shippensburg University. We are discussing his book, There You Have It, The Life, Legacy, and Legend of Howard Cosell, published in 2010 by the University of Massachusetts Press. When I was a kid, I could do a pretty good Howard Cosell impersonation. But that's not saying much. Cosell had one of the most distinctive and most easily imitated voices in America. And it was a frequently heard voice, even by those who weren't sports fans. Cosell covered boxing, baseball, and football, He hosted sports documentaries and made daily radio commentaries, and he appeared on talk shows, primetime variety specials, and the cheesy athletic competitions between TV celebrities. To borrow one of the multi-syllable words that he was fond of using in his broadcasts, Cosell was ubiquitous. At the start of our interview, John Bloom recounts how his memories of watching sports are punctuated by his parents yelling at the television screen, telling Cosell to shut up. But as he came to realize, the hostility toward Cosell wasn't due only to his irritating voice and his arrogant manner. As a journalist, Cosell took positions that were often unpopular and his criticisms of American sports culture were often pointed and insightful. A lot of sports commentators today take pride in their no-nonsense, in-your-face opinions, but there are very few with the real courage and real intelligence that Cosell brought to sports journalism. If you grew up watching American sports in the 70s and 80s, as John and I did, you will enjoy listening to this interview about one of the icons of our youth. We certainly had fun recording it. And if you are unfamiliar with Howard Cosell, you will learn a lot from John's comments, not just about this particular broadcaster, but also about the rise of televised sports in American culture. John, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. So the first question I want to ask is, uh, were you a fan of Howard Cosell? Well, uh, actually, when he when I was a kid growing up, I was not really a big fan of Howard Cosell, to be honest. I, I found him to be, uh, you know, annoying and opinionated, and um, it was just sort of a knee-jerk reaction, really. And I think, you know, I was sort of following... Uh, my family, when they would watch, you know, they would scream at the television and say, shut up, Howard, you know. Um, so, and that was mostly during Monday Night Football, to be honest. Um, that was where, when I really became more aware of him. Uh, I can remember the first season of Monday Night Football. Yeah. Um, and I grew up out on the West Coast. So at least, you know, I, I lived there when I was, uh, the first season of Monday Night Football. Then we moved to Albany, New York for a couple of years and moved back. And during... You know, the years when we lived in the West Coast, I watched Monday Night Football all the time because it was on earlier. Yeah, you know, yeah. I could. Uh, so I, I, I was not a big fan of his, but I remember um, as, you know, the decade wore on, he would have these special features on Wide World of Sports that I always found interesting. You know, there was one where he went with the Harlem Globetrotters into Attica Prison. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Um, There's another one where uh, he did a kind of retrospective on um black boxing champions with going all the way back to Jack Johnson that's how I you know first learned about Jack Johnson so i i did have a little bit of a sense of him being maybe deeper or more interesting than i had given him credit for and it was only really later after he uh retired that i um 
I, I started to appreciate him a lot more. So one thing that you just mentioned there, and and thinking about this, everyone called him Howard. Wonder yeah. why, why was that? Do you think? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and it, it could be just that we were um, mimicking what they did on television. You know, yeah, they, would, yeah. they they just talk to each other, you know, on a first name basis like that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. You know, it's funny because um, I when he would talk to Ali, you know, Ali would always call him Cosell. Yeah, know? yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. All right. So what led you to the idea that that uh, Cosell was was deserving of a scholarly biography? <laughs> well, um, one of the things was I, you know, I, he was an enormously famous person and a huge uh, figure. That doesn't, in and of itself, make him worthy. But I think, as I, it was actually when I was in graduate school, at the University of Minnesota, I had read an, uh, an editorial that he wrote, and um, after the end of his career uh, on on broadcasting. Uh, you know, he wanted to stay somehow, you know, active. So I don't know why he did this, but he took a, a, a job with the New York Daily News writing regular columns, sports columns. And they were a lot like his speaking of sports uh, uh, radio pieces that he did, very short, you know, sports columns. And these appeared uh, syndicated around the country, and they were syndicated in the Minneapolis Star and Tribune. And so I read one one, one morning about Joe Paterno, uh, which ironically, I've ended up in central Pennsylvania. So it's about Joe Paterno. And it was a very, actually, it turned out to be a very prescient piece mm-hmm. because he pointed out how Joe Paterno has a reputation for running a clean program and uh, being committed to a- academics and being of high moral character. Um, but in fact, by perpetuating that idea in himself, he allows a corrupt system to continue. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a pretty, you know, sophisticated argument. And it made me think, you know, maybe there was a lot more to him than I had, you know, originally in my life given him credit for. And I went and talked to a um, a faculty member in my department about the idea of maybe do some, doing something about this. This was like 1987. It was right after the Penn State had won uh, the national championship against University of Miami. And... Uh, he said, well, you know, he he did a lot of interesting stuff with Muhammad Ali. And I really had not been that aware of what he had done with Muhammad Ali and the defense of the, you know, toward not only Ali, but other African-American athletes. That I found really interesting. And I thought, you know, here's somebody who is probably at the pinnacle of fame on a network in, you know, American popular culture. Um, but, you know, was a very different kind of character. And I guess those sorts of things, let me think about, you know, he wasn't really very good looking. He had this, you know, opinionated personality. He had a a very ethnic accent. You know, he wasn't the type of person that you would expect to become, you know, one of the two or three most famous uh, television personalities in the United States at the peak of his career. And I think that question led me to, uh, to go and investigate his life and his career. Mm-hmm. So you've written before on, on sports and American history. Yes, I have. Yeah, I wrote um, about baseball card collecting um, in, among adults, which it was sort of a kind of odd angle on public history and memory. Um, and then I wrote, on, uh, I wrote a, a book about um, sports at federal Indian boarding schools. And uh, such as the Carlisle Indian School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where sports became a very important part of the public relations and curricular activities of the of the school. Uh, and then I also edited a book on race and sports in America with um, a co-editor, Michael uh, Nevin Wellard. Mm-hmm. So the issue or the the connection of race and sports in American society figures. Uh, prominently in your in your treatment of of Cosell, can you talk about how you yeah. look at Cosell through that that prism? Couple of things, you know. First of all, he did you know um, champion um, African American athletes and civil rights on a number of different cases. You know, the most famous would be with Muhammad Ali, um, and Ali, uh, you know, was somebody to uh, join the Nation of Islam and converted to. Islam through the Nation of Islam and um, refused to be inducted into uh, the Vietnam War, and uh, uh, because of that, he was he had his title, his heavyweight title, stripped from him. So uh, Cosell took his side 
in that case. He actually never, you know, expressed that he agreed with it, with Ali, but he did uh, respect Ali's right to have his opinion and not have his title stripped from him. He also, you know, recognized Ali's name change to Muhammad Ali and was very, uh, very, you know, forceful in his defense of that. Um, he also uh, defended people like John Carlos and Tommy Smith when they went before uh, the uh, medal ceremony after the 200-meter run at Mexico City in 1968 and did a um, protest with their, you know, uh, raised fists, and um, and he defended them. They they were, you know, kicked out of the Olympic Village and, and sent home, and he defended them in their right to protest as well. Um, he defended Kirk Flood, who was, uh, you know, the first uh, player to, um, you know, advocate for free agency and against the reserve clause in baseball, who was African-American, and that wasn't just incidental. It was because he didn't want to be traded to the Philadelphia Phillies, who were a team that had, you know, a notoriously bad relationship between African-American uh, players and the fans, who were you know, constantly receiving horrible taunts and um, bad press coverage and, and, you know, all sorts of nasty stuff. So, um, you know, on a number of different cases, he really took the side of African-American athletes. Um, and it's a question, you know, one of the questions that is why, you know, why would, why would he do this? This really almost became kind of a centerpiece of his career in many respects. And, um, and it did seem to be, to, I would argue, it, it was something he, you know, did sincerely feel. Um, and uh, and that, that's one of the questions I do explore in the book. One of the things that I think you know, might have been true is for, for Cosell, who himself was Jewish. He was raised in a Jewish community in Brooklyn. He never really was a practicing Jew. But you know, when you're raised in a religious community in Brooklyn, you know, from the 1920s to the 1930s, you're in an entirely Jewish world. Um, and he felt a lot of anti-Semitism of the time period. And I think that he, you know, translated that a little bit in his mind, you know, where he was understanding a connection between the prejudice and anti-Semitism he experienced and the prejudice and, um, and racism that he saw that African-Americans were experiencing in the, in the 60s and in the civil rights movement. And this is one of the themes that you talk about throughout the book is uh, that Cosell uh, explicitly identified himself uh, as Jewish. So, so how then did that shape his uh, uh, his view of the world? Well, it's interesting because he, um, as far as I could find, I couldn't find a single incident where he actually stated he was Jewish on the air. Mm-hmm. But he wrote, um, uh, you know, four autobiographies, and in the first two, uh, which appeared only about a year apart, the first one was called Cosell, and the second one was called Like It Is. In both of those books, he talks extensively about being Jewish. Um, the sort of touchstone event he identifies in both of those um, books is the 1972 Olympic hostage crisis, um, where the Israeli Olympic team was, um, was held hostage by Palestinian terrorists, and they ended up um, getting killed on the tarmac at an airport outside of Munich. And you know, that was an event that he um, felt very, very moved by. Um, he said his quote was he felt intensely Jewish after uh, that event. Um, and he was particularly critical of Avery Brundage for continuing the games after that event happened. Um, and having this take place in Munich, in Germany, was particularly chilling for Cosell because he had lived through the years of World War II and, you know, remembered uh, how Hitler had been in power and, and so forth. So, um, you know, th- those were all things that he recalls in his own in his own um, uh, autobiography. So you're right; he was very explicit in how he identified himself as Jewish. Interestingly, though, he never because he um, he wasn't you know all that religious, and in fact, in some ways, uh, uh, ran away from his Jewish identity. He never identified being Jewish ever in positive terms. It was always either you know, as a target of oppression, of anti-Semitism, or as something also that held him back. You know, he, um, he felt like the religious, you know, when he describes the religious community and the, um, and the Jewish community that was around his uh, family growing up in Brooklyn, you know, the, the way he portrays them, they were gossipy, um, they were closed-minded, 
they disapproved of you know people who tried to go above and beyond the community and do new things. And uh, so he sees them, I think, also as a force holding them back in life a little bit. Probably the most vivid sort of example of this would be his parents who wanted him to become a lawyer. And they were, you know, very heavily pressuring him to become a lawyer in the 1930s. And he wanted to do something else with his life, which obviously he, he did. And he took a lot of risks, you know, to, to become a broadcaster and leave the legal profession. Um, so that was obviously something very important to him. And uh, uh, so it, it, it is interesting how, you know, being Jewish on one hand was part of his identity. He mentions it quite a bit. He mentions anti-Semitism quite a bit. But um, he he uh, does not have, hold hold any or did not hold really any affinity toward Jewish religious practices. He says he was never bar mitzvahed. Um, you know he uh, had a, a, a grandfather who tried to instruct him in Hebrew, and you know he talks about how you know he was he sort of gave up on him very early. Um, so. Uh, you know, religiously, it wasn't really that important, but I think it, it defines his identity, he feels, in, in very important ways. So you talked about his, uh, that his family wanted him to become a lawyer. He went to law school, practiced law for a time. Uh, but what, what drew him in his early years to sports? I think that my, my theory about what drew him to sports, I think he was, um, first of all, you know, the, the world of, of Brooklyn was heavily um, connected to sports, especially the, the ethnic world of of Brooklyn, sports were one of the ways that um, you know reformers of the time period tried to you know provide for urban ethnic communities um, you know something that would address the confinement of urban life and the um, the difficulties of urban life. So when he writes, and he doesn't really mention that, but when you when he writes about um, you know growing up in Brooklyn, he does mention you know there's the YMHA, there was this organization, there's that organization. They always had um, you know, uh, basketball games that were going on or football games that were going on. It was a community very much, you know, invested in sports. He even talks about the Catholic youth organizations and the Irish kids and the games that they would play. And um, so, you know, New York City um, sports were a big part of life, not only in recreation, but then also with, you know, um, the identification of Brooklyn itself, and especially identification of Brooklyn with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he writes very, you know, eloquently about the Brooklyn Dodgers and how important they were to the identity of, of Brooklyn. Um, so I think in part, you know, he had grown up with that being an important um, part of the, the, the world that would help him kind of identify with, you know, something bigger than the, than the community he was from. You know, he could kind of you know, be in, in, involved in something important and big. He it, related to that. He also was kind of, I think, interested in just entertainment. You know, he um, uh, the entertainment world was fascinating to him. And um, you know, you see that later in his career, he tried an entertainment variety show, which kind of flopped, called the Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell. Um, and it, that didn't that didn't go anywhere. But you know, he he, he in the, with that show, he wanted to bring the Beatles back together, and you know, do all these other you know sort of crazy things. He he was really interested in that kind of thing. And when you look at his legal career, one of the things that he started to do in um, the latter part of his legal career before he left for broadcasting was um, become sort of involved in sports and entertainment work in the law profession. So um, he took on these clients like Willie Mays and some other people, baseball players, and he was really one of the first people, you know, in terms of the legal profession, to sort of pay attention to the fact that these athletes are signing um, contracts for endorsements, and they don't they don't really know what they're signing, and they need to have some legal representation to uh, you know help them sort of get guided through. Uh, the process of signing, you know, an endorsement deal for a watch or, you know, whatever it might be. And it's sort of funny looking at what the endorsements were at, at that time. They were pretty small <laughs> potatoes. But, um, but you know, he was, he was attentive to that. That was sort of, I think, his gateway into maybe getting involved in sports in a, in a more pronounced way. Um, he did try to, according to his memoir, he did try to um, become a radio broadcaster very early on um, when he was uh, just out of the army in 1946 and was rejected at a sound test 
So I don't know if he had given up on radio or not, but in the early 1950s, one of the things that he, one of the entities that he represented was Little League Baseball in Manhattan. And um, in the process of doing that, he somehow was able to propose a, a show, a radio show called All League Clubhouse. And uh, it was a show where Little League players would ask, he would have a you know, big league baseball player come in or athlete come in, and Little League baseball players would ask them questions on the air. It's sort of like a weekend you know, kind of uh, show that kids would listen to. Which sounds like uh, a great idea for a sports show, as I was It reading. does. Now, Cosell would write the question. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there wasn't as, I guess, impromptu as you might imagine. But, you know, it... it you know, worked really well, and that led him to pretty much his other gigs on um, the the station, which was WABC. So he was with ABC from really the very huh. first show that he did. Huh. So a little more about his background. You mentioned uh, that he was in the Army uh, during the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, he served in different administrative roles in the Transportation Corps. But probably what's most important from his military service is that while in the Army, he met his, his future wife. So can you tell us about... Uh, Emmy Abrams and the circumstances of their marriage and the influence that she had on Cosell. She had an enormous influence on Cosell. She was um, she she was probably as unlikely a woman to marry Howard Cosell as his broadcasting career was as a career for Howard Cosell. Um, she was not Jewish herself. She was sort of a, a mainline Philadelphia Protestant. You know, came from a very uh, proper uh, background. Her father uh, was. I believe assistant postmaster general under the in the Eisenhower administration, and um, you know was sort of this straight laced uh, wasp, and you know so here you've got this marriage of this you know Brooklyn Jewish kid and and this um, uh, you know society girl from Philadelphia, and uh, they hit it off immediately, and they really um, were you know according to everybody I interviewed, um, you know they were inseparable. Um, in fact, Cosell would, you know, during his days on Monday Night Football, she would come along on road trips with him. Um, you know, she sometimes would be there in the booth uh, with the with the crew knitting, you know. And and, <laughs> um, and so apparently, you know, Howard Cosell, as you could probably imagine, he he, if, if you, you know, what people would tell me is he was exactly the way he was on the air in real life. You know, he was argumentative and combative and. You know, no one won an argument with Howard Cosell except Emmy. Um, you know, she could, you know, just with a glance make him shut up and sit down. And uh, so it's pretty funny hearing those stories about her. You know, he gave, as I said, he gave up his legal career in 1953. He was making, I think, something like $30,000 a year at the time, which was a pretty mm-hmm. good salary. And he gave that up for uh, $50 or so an episode, you know, to do these radio spots. So that was a huge risk that he was taking, and she was completely supportive of that. So uh, that, that you know that was sort of indicative of how um, how much they supported one another, and, and especially she supported uh, Howard through his career. So you talked about the circumstances of uh, Cosell moving from uh, his law practice. And, and getting started in sports broadcasting and doing these these programs where children are asking questions of major league players. Uh, but you talk about that right at, at the start of his broadcasting career, Cosell brought uh, or introduced innovations to the profession. Could you talk about mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that when we, when we listen to um, radio or even television, uh, one of the things that uh, we're, we're used to is, uh, you know, somebody will be talking, you know, narrating a story, and then they'll say, you know, this is what uh, Eli Manning had to say, you know, and then you'll hear Eli Manning talking, and it'll be from an interview by his locker, you know. Um, that was not done at all until really Cosell um, came into broadcasting. One of the things, he was very kind of entrepreneurial in his early years. He tried all these, you know, different things, and one of the things that he tried was going into the locker room and tape recording interviews with people right by their lockers. And that just was not done. You had print reporters who would come up to players by their lockers and, you know, write down um, answers to interview questions. But in terms of 
broadcasting those those interviews were were always done in a studio or or at a press conference so they they were not done um right by the locker and so you know Perry Coso was a very tall man he was about six foot three and it was hunched over you remember what he might look like mm-hmm. listeners might you know imagine him and he had a uh, a, I think it was like a 25-pound uh, reel-to-reel tape recorder on his back, portable reel-to-reel tape recorder. Um, Dave Kindred, the sports writer, likes to say that every uh, couple years of Cosell's life, the uh, weight of the tape recorder increased by five pounds. Um, but I think it was probably about 25 pounds or so. But it's still a pretty big you know, tape recorder. He's got strapped to his back. And he would interview people um, right at their lockers. Um, and so that's, you know, a huge innov- innovation that he brought in. And he invested in that. That was not something that, um, you know, ABC uh, bought for him or, or anything. In fact, ABC as a network did not even have a sports department. He started his own sports production company. And what he would do is go in and, you know, do these interviews and then sell them, uh, sell the interviews to uh, ABC. So. Uh, yeah, that that was a, a, a huge innovation that he had. The general tone of his interviews, where he was a do, would do a probing interview of uh, of athletes, trying to go beyond just the X's and O's, and he wouldn't do a kind of uh, hero worship of these athletes, but you know had critical interviews of them. You know that's something we see a lot more now. You know, um, think of those interviews all the time on ESPN, but they really weren't done quite as often either so th- those were all that kind of critical sports commentary and critical questioning about sports were all things that he uh, brought into sports broadcasting as well so Cosell starts to appear on uh, the ABC television network in the mid-1960s and this is due largely to the lead of, of Rune Arledge so can mm-hmm. you tell us about about Arledge and his work with the network and, and why he wanted Cosell on TV well, um, there was, you know, the, the the story behind that is, you know, Cosell had been on local television in, in New York City, um, but there was a, a an executive at ABC, director of pro, uh, programming, who basically had said Howard Cosell is forbidden from coming onto the network, and he, he said this at about you know 1960 or so. Um, so Cosell had done some radio network spots, and he was a local, you know, television. So can I interrupt there? Why was why was sure. he forbidden? Cosell argues that it actually that it had something to do with his being Jewish, that it had to do, you know, with uh, the uh, announcer. I mean, the uh, the executive was was actually Southern, um, and uh, you know, some some claim that he felt Cosell would offend Southern audiences mm-hmm. um, with his, you know, overly New York, overly um, uh, aggressive demeanor, and that's not an unlikely unusual thing to happen at that time. If you look at television writers, for example, that wrote for television programming in the 1950s, early 1960s, they would often say, we don't want to offend Southern audiences. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, they had affiliates, the networks had these affiliates in the South, and those affiliates could drop the network. They could go to another network. They could become an independent station. Um, They didn't necessarily have to become, you know, an ABC affiliate. Um, and uh, and advertisers wanted to sell to those audiences, you know. So uh, th- there were great pains made to not offend southern audiences, and especially you know when you think about the news coverage of the early 1960s, late 1950s, and the civil rights movement is really heating up, and um, you know a lot of southern audiences are offended by you know what is being shown on television. So uh, you know this this executive, his name was Tom Moore. He was himself from Mississippi. Um, he had he had uh, gone and made his name in Hollywood as um, someone who sold grave plots at Forest Lawn Cemetery, um, and uh, he he you know really wanted to take an attitude where you want, you want to avoid controversy with these people from the South, and you want to you know you got to, we've got to build a network that way. And Rude Arledge was a young executive, you know, just at the Columbia University, and. Um, was working at ABC beginning in the mid 1960s, and he knew Cosell from you know the local sports broadcast in the WABC in New York, and he had the complete opposite point of view. He he felt like what you need to do to um, you know build a network um, like ABC um, 
and by the way, this is a I don't mean to take another tangent here, but ABC was the considered the third network. You know, the three networks mm-hmm. were CBS, NBC, and ABC. And ABC had been a splinter um, from uh, NBC when NBC had two networks: NBC Blue and N- N- NBC Red. And um, uh, they were found in violation of antitrust in the 1940s, and so the network had to split. So they were always this kind of stepchild. They were just always struggling to get their people to watch their programming. And I think Arledge's attitude was, you know, Arledge was a New Yorker. You know, he was a media-savvy kind of guy. And I think he just thought, why not have somebody who's controversial? You know, you may love him, you may hate him, but you'll watch him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, you know, claims he conspired from his first day at work to try to get Cosell onto the air. And he snuck him on, you know, despite the disapproval of Tom Moore, I think without even the knowledge of Tom Moore, to do baseball broadcast for uh, a season in 1965. ABC had uh, a contract with Major League Baseball. So he initially did baseball broadcasts and then worked him into doing boxing with, uh, with Wide World of Sports. You know, it's funny, in my book, I, I say that I asked the question, you know, why was Cosell important? And, um, and when I ask that question, I'm not saying why was he important. I take that he was important as a given. But I ask, you know, how was it that someone like this became important? And your question about Rune Arledge is central because, you know, part of what, what you need to look at to find out how someone like Cosell became important is actually the industry, you know, the, the, the apparatus of media and broadcasting at the time period that he was becoming involved in it. And television was kind of still in its infancy in some ways. And you had people like, you know, uh, Rune Arledge who were given you know, a lot of leeway and uh, allowed to make a lot of decisions, um, whether explicitly or, you know, through subterfuge or however they were able to do it. But they, they were um, able to make certain decisions and get away with them and, uh, and do these things just to sort of build an audience. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking in that section, too, that... It's it's really inconceivable that a network would hire somebody like Howard Cosell today. Yeah, I I cannot. <laughs> yeah, you know I sort of think about um, you know in terms of a, a sports writer Dave Zarin. You know, yeah, being yeah. Uh, you know a, a, and he's probably I would say Dave Zarin is a in many ways a much better, more critical, smarter you know <laughs> even reporter than than Howard Cosell. But I I couldn't see you know, a network hiring him uh, in the same way, you know, that they were, you know, willing to hire Cosell. Um, now, you never know. There might be another medium out there, especially in the Internet age and with, you know, blogs and other things that, you know, uh, Howard Cosell might emerge out of, of something like that. You know, Dave Zarin has gotten probably more of an audience now through alternative media than um, he would have gotten maybe 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, but you're right. Uh, I ESPN Fox are so concerned with the network brand and the corporate mm-hmm. brand, and they're so um, involved with a whole sort of uh, you know conglomerate of corporations that I I couldn't see that either. Yeah, yeah, and not only with his politics, but with his as you've mentioned, his voice, his his looks. Mm-hmm. He just yeah, it it even even when we were watching him as kids, he was just he just stood out as this odd yeah. figure on television. Yeah, it it is, and it's funny because I think that the pressure has always been not to hire someone like Cosell. That's why Tom Moore didn't want to put him on. Um, but I think maybe the rules and the the whole system of network television was not as uh, mm-hmm. um, and didn't have as many gatekeepers, maybe, yeah, yeah. you know, as as it does today. So uh, someone like like um, uh, Arun Arledge would would be able to do it. Oddly enough, you know, you actually had more of a monopoly on an audience back then, though, too. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason why Cosell is so famous. You know, today, you know, in the sort of pantheon of, of media that's out there, you're pretty easily lost. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the time, you, know, you didn't even have to be a sports fan to know who Cosell was because there were only three networks. Everybody had the same three networks in, you know, whatever city they lived in in the country. Yeah, I took note of that, that quote from Cosell. I think it was probably from the 70s or the 80s that, uh, where he said there are three C's that dominate <laughs> network television. Cosell. Yeah, Cosell, Carson, and Cronkite. Yeah. Yeah. 
which which is accurate in thinking about television back then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, everybody knew who those people were. You didn't even have to watch Carson ever. You know, if you didn't ever stay up that late, you knew who Johnny Carson was. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, perhaps you'd know who Letterman was is today, but it's 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 not quite the same thing. It's not quite as dominant. Yeah, yeah. All right. So looking at at Cosell's rise as a broadcaster, so he gets on television in the in the mid '60s. You say he starts doing baseball, then then boxing, and uh, the story of Cosell's rise is is typically connected with the career of Muhammad Ali, and yeah. and this link has been the subject of of much attention. So can you tell us how this relationship developed? Um, it's an it's an interesting one. You know, it, it began because Cosell was uh, covered. You know, assigned to cover boxing. And um, I believe the first instance of Cosell actually going to, to Ali and calling him Muhammad Ali was in Lewiston, Maine, when um, they when Ali fought Sonny Liston uh, for the second time. You know, so Cosell was was there with Ali from the very beginning of his career. I think things really started to pick up between them in terms of what we remember about them when. Uh, Ali refused to be inducted into the draft, and Cosell went to Houston, which is where you know um, you know Ali was being was, was having to go into the induction process, and actually covered that with the rest of the press. There was a big media circus down there when he went in. You know, Ali. I mean, uh, Cosell. You know, one of the things he did right away, he called him by the name of Muhammad Ali. Um, he defended his right to, you know, declare himself a conscientious objector. There's, I think there's pretty strong evidence that Cosell didn't wholeheartedly believe that that was right. I think he felt probably that Ali should have gone into the draft, but uh, that you know will never be known for sure because he kept his cards close to his chest on that. But um, but you know he made a distinction between you know supporting his cause and supporting his right to to say what he said. And then you know after he was he had his his title taken away, Cosell would have him on wide world of sports to do, you know, analysis of boxing matches or to talk about um, their, um, the, the Cosell, you know, Ali's own career. And, um, and this went back to actually before Ali had his title stripped, he would act, have him on the air and they had a great rapport with one another. You know, they would sort of do a little shadow boxing with one another. They would, you know, they would joke, they would argue they had a great rapport that way. It was great television to watch them, you know, engaging in these kinds of tele- uh, conversations. But the fact that Ali, Kotel kept having Ali back on after his title was stripped was interesting because it kept Ali in the public eye. And that's one of the things about boxing. It makes it, I think, a little bit distinct from other sports. It's a, you know, there, there are only short boxing matches interrupted by huge, long periods of time where, you know, fights are arranged and, you know, fighters train and, um, and a lot, there's a lot of downtime and a lot of time for build-up and hype and, and everything else. And that, I think, is perfect for you know, people like Ali and Cosell, who are storytellers. And they just, they just work very well together that way. And you know, it, it really kept Ali's career, in many respects, alive until he um, was allowed, you know, Supreme Court over, overturned uh, the, uh, the right of uh, the Boxing Commission to take his titles away and and Ali was allowed to fight again and uh you know that kept his name in front of audiences so people the whole time were saying you know when's he going to is he going to be able to get back in you know can you fight Joe Frazier and and you know Cosell was probably instrumental in that Cosell used to like to say you know to Ali I made you <laughs> and Ali, of course that would infuriate Ali and Ali would say you know Cosell I made you you know and I think that they both probably had um, I, I, I would think that Ali had a better claim to make than Cosell on that. But Cosell, you know, he did, he did to some extent. You know, he, he kept he kept um, Ali in front of the public, and in that sport, that's a really important thing to do. Mm-hmm. So in 1970, Rune Arledge and ABC launch a this great experiment in in sports broadcasting to put professional football on primetime TV. So so what part did Cosell? play in the success of Monday Night Football. He was he was in the broadcast booth right from the start. So what part did he play in the success of that program? And and then what part did Monday Night Football play in the in the growing celebrity of of Cosell? Well, I think Cosell played a huge part in the success of Monday Night Football because he 
you know, Monday Night Football was different from NFL football on Sundays as it was done on, on CBS or AFL and then NFL football on NBC because it was entertainment. It was, you know, he was um, somebody who put football within the context of entertainment. He was able to spin a yarn, tell a narrative, you know, um, put, put storylines together. And, and part of the storyline of Monday Night Football was the kind of crazy um, uh, relationship that he had with Don Meredith from the very beginning, where you had these really odd assortments of people brought together in a broadcast booth, sort of in a way that only sports does, you know, in, in mm-hmm. American life. We have this, you know, diversity of people in America, and they get brought together, um, you know, as participants and spectators in sports. And so I think that, you know, they they formed a, a, you know, sort of a zone of characters that people could uh, identify with and, and enjoy, you know, um, bantering with one another. And that began the very first season. And the first season, interestingly enough, it was, um, it was uh, Howard Cosell, Don Meredith, and the play-by-play announcer was Keith Jackson. Uh, so Frank Gifford didn't come until the next season. And uh, Jackson told me that, you know, he sat there with Cosell in Central Park after the um, you know, decision was made on who would be in the broadcast booth. And by the way, that was also, I think, the first time that um, for a season, you know, three people were brought in to work in a broadcast booth together. Before then, it would you know, consider you can only have two in a broadcast booth. Um, and uh, Jackson said, how's this going to work? We have a Georgia cracker, a Texas cowboy, and a Brooklyn Jew. And he said, but, you know, they, they figured it out. <laughs> and I think the three of them really did get along well. They really worked very well together. And then the next season, uh, they uh, didn't renew Keith Jackson's contract because really Arledge had in his mind the whole time that he wanted to have Frank Gifford as the play-by-play announcer. And Bud Gifford was tied up with a contract with CBS at the time. So when his contract ended, um, he brought Frank Gifford in. And that's something that was kind of interesting, too. Cosell was uh, unhappy with that decision. And that created some friction in the booth as well. Yeah, can you talk about that in terms of why... uh, And this plays out throughout the rest of of Cosell's life, this... uh, I don't know, would you call it an animosity toward Frank Gifford? Yeah, I think he, he <laughs> that, that's a good way to put it. Uh, I think, you know, Gifford, from all accounts, uh, people have told me he was a very, very nice person. And in fact, I interviewed Gifford, you know, for the book, and he, he was very, very nice to me. And, uh, but it, uh, Cosell really didn't like him. And I think one of the reasons why uh, was he felt people like Frank Gifford, who were ex-athletes, who were good-looking, who sounded, you know, good, were given advantages in broadcasting that they didn't deserve. And that you know, seasoned broadcasters, you know, veteran broadcasters were were passed over. He would always complain that Gifford made too many mistakes as a play-by-play announcer. In fact, he had a sarcastic name for him that he called him Faultless Frank, um, and that was you know a dig, really a dig, you know, biting comment because of Gifford's you know gas that he sometimes would make early on in his uh, broadcasting career. And uh, and he used a term that actually he borrowed, and then I think he could later say stole from Robert Lipsight, uh, the jockocracy, mm-hmm. uh, which actually Lipsight credits that. I think he credits that to uh, Flo Kennedy, I think, who was a feminist um, writer. Uh, the way Cosell used it, though, was very specific, and that was, you know, um, stating that, that jocks have this unfair advantage in broadcasting. His definition was very narrow. Um, rather than, you know, jocks have an advantage in society, you know, or something like that. He was more narrowly focused on broadcasting. So something that would uh, that was interesting I found in, in that chapter on Monday Night Football is the uh, the public response to Cosell in those first seasons of Monday Night Football. Yeah. Yeah, that was really interesting. And, you know, you had responses all over the place, you know, from him. Um, but I think that my, you know, he was... Uh, clearly a, a kind of a lightning rod. You know, Cosell was famous for his sort of uh, overinflated vocabulary. He used these you know, crazy words that were many syllables that nobody had ever heard of. And it was pretty funny. It was, you know, some, some people actually wrote and they would call him on his vocabulary and say, you know, I looked that one up and it doesn't exist. <laughs> but he, he was you know, very much a, a kind of a lightning rod. You know, even by the end of his career, he was getting you know, death threats uh, from from unhappy fans, 
there, there was a halftime segment that they would do called Halftime Highlights. And if you watch, you know, on ESPN now, Chris Berman does this yeah, shtick yeah. where he, and that's really a takeoff of Halftime Highlights. So he would have these uh, films of games that had taken place the day before. And they were given to him by NFL Films. So he had no um, say in what, what games were, were chosen. Um, but, you know, fans of particular teams, if their team was not on Halftime Highlights after a big win, they would blame Cosell for that, and mm-hmm. uh, he would get a lot of hate mail, apparently, for that. So, uh, so it was interesting. Now, he really became, I think, the focal point for um, that booth, even though he wasn't the play-by-play announcer, and he wasn't really the you know, key expert in the booth either. Um, he was you know, sort of this other guy that was in there. But it, it really was about, you know, a lot of Monday Night Football games, as we know, you know, by – Midway through the second quarter, it's pretty obvious who's going to win the game. And, you know, it looked like a good game, you know, the previous March when they may have scheduled it, but it, you know, it ended up not being that way. And, you know, he was one of the reasons why people kept watching. Yeah, yeah. No, that was my, when I was a little kid, my bedtime was after halftime highlights. It was a treat to be able to stay up to watch halftime highlights, and then it was off yeah. the bed. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you really you wanted to see your team. You know, yeah, that, yeah, that was yeah. always, they, they were on for maybe, you know, eight seconds, but that was always a, a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So in the 70s with Monday Night Football, um, Cosell's fame increases. He, he gets the platform in broadcasting that he always wanted. But but would it be correct to say that Cosell didn't handle his fame very well? Yeah, I think that would be uh, spot on. I think that he became very embittered. He had a critique of of broadcasting and of sports broadcasting that was actually really um, insightful, which is that you know network broadcasters are clients of the you know leagues and sports that they broadcast. In other words, you know they they are bidding for contracts to broadcast those those the NFL or Major League Baseball or whatever it might be, and therefore. You know, when they are covering them as journalists, there is an, an inherent conflict of interest. And, um, and that was, you know, something I, I call that the Cosell critique. And it, actually, it's, it's a pretty, you know, um, basic structural kind of critique of, of you know, American mm-hmm. sports broadcasting. And it's a good one. You know, and we, we see that today when, you know, whenever you just watch ESPN's coverage of the BCS, for example, the BCS system, which, you know, 90% of all fans know is a corrupt, you know, joke of a, you know, way to decide a No, no, a no, college. no. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, that, that it is, you know, I, I don't really have a bone to pick in terms of who was the last national champion, but, it, you know, it, it isn't really a, a real national championship. It's mm-hmm. not a, and it's not decided on the field, and, and I think... You know, if you watch ESPN every year, they, they'll say, hey, it worked out this year. You know, and, <laughs> you, know you, you may have a couple of people criticizing it off in the, in the corner. But, you know, for the most part, they have a you know, they're, they're clients of this, you know, system that they're very invested in, literally. Um, so he was critical of that. And I, I think, you know, those insights were very good. But as he got into the 70s and really became involved in Monday Night Football, maybe I, for a number of reasons. You know, one thing is his fame in Monday Night Football conflicted in some ways, that he was getting famous off of the system at the same time that he was always so critical of it. And I think maybe that, that contradiction was a hard thing for him to, um, to put together. He also, I think as the 70s went on, he felt that he was uh, you know, kind of the rather than you know part of an entertaining banter between himself and Dandy Don Meredith, he became kind of the um, geek everybody made fun of in the booth. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and he set that up a little bit himself. You know, from the very beginning, I think he probably would be as much to blame for that if that's true as anyone else, because I think he recognized that was part of the entertainment value of of himself in the broadcast booth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and going back to that question we talked about with why did uh, why did people why did viewers call him Howard? I, I recall the use of that by other announcers as as somewhat belittling. You know now yeah. now Howard. You know you, you need to stay in your place. I think you're right. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. You know, it's a way of kind of uh, not taking him very seriously. Yeah, yeah. So you talked about this this criticism he's making of of uh, television broadcasts of sports. But something else during the 70s and into the 80s is he's not only critical of, of the broadcasting of sports, he's also becoming 
uh, dismissive of sports in general. Yeah, and uh, their importance in society. You know, he does that a little bit in the 60s, but I, I feel like he, that really um, accelerates quite a bit in the 70s, in the late 1970s. So, you know, one place you could see that is he decided to um, teach these adjunct courses. At One was at Yale and another one was at New York University. And I never was able to get a copy of the syllabus from Yale, but I did get a copy of it from New York University. And um, it had, you know, the these books that were um, very critical of sports on it and his um, syllabus was, you know, geared toward a, a very sharp critique of of sports, and you know what he felt was an overemphasis um, in our society on sports. So, you know, in a way, his critique of the jockocracy in broadcasting maybe became a little bit broader. Mm-hmm. So, by the early 1980s, there was mutual disenchantment between Cosell and ABC. Why why had the relationship become strained? Well, for one thing, um, you know, Cosell had become so combative. He started to really become unpopular in, in many places, and you actually had some affiliates that were um, at, you know, affiliate meetings, and they were saying, you know, that they wanted to see him off the air. And it took one of the, uh, one of Rune Arledge's lieutenants, um, Jim Spence, to kind of quell that a little bit. You know, there, there had been that. Um, Cosell actually, you know, one thing about him that um, was interesting to find out is he worked incredibly hard. Um, he did a lot more sports than just Monday Night Football. In fact, he did, Keith Jackson told me that Cosell did more baseball games than any other sport on ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, so he did Monday Night Baseball, and that, you know, there were quite a few games throughout that season. He did, you know, the kind of junk sports, as we called them at the time, uh, Battle of the Network Stars, where, you know, these uh, celebrities would compete against each other. Um, he did boxing matches. Uh, he did football. He would do um, college football games, uh, you know, bowl games and things like that. So he was always doing something. I think, you know, he started to burn out, um, became more demanding and uh, angry about the way things were at ABC. And then finally, um, they agreed to let him do uh, a television program. Um, that was not actually part of ABC Sports, and it was called Sports Beat. And it was almost like a 60 Minutes um, mm-hmm. program about sports. And it was very highly critically acclaimed. And he had some really great people writing for it, you know, who um, ended up becoming involved in broadcasting, late sports broadcasting later on. And even Peter Melman, who ended up becoming a writer for Seinfeld, was, was a writer for him on that show. Um, and uh, so it was a very, very well done show, and it addressed really, you know, very important issues. One of the big issues that they discussed quite a bit on that program, for example, was stadium construction, you know, publicly funded stadium construction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, some really interesting stuff. But uh, the, the, the program was, was always put in these slots where, you know, it was hard to find. And, and, uh, and Cosell felt that the network was doing that to deliberately undermine his career. Mm-hmm. And... Um, when he finally exited, uh, you know, there's this infamous incident where he was broadcasting a Monday Night Football game in uh, the fall of 1983, and uh, he called Alvin Garrett, who was a receiver for the Washington Redskins. He said, look at that little monkey run. And um, immediately, you know, the phones lit up, and there were protests from African-American leaders around the country uh, that he had used kind of an epithet in the broadcast. And Cosell, being Cosell, denied it ever happened. And I guess he was, in all his years of broadcasting, unaware there was something called videotape. And uh, they were able to go back and show very clearly he had, in fact, said that. And, you know, he later apologized. But, you know, in part, ABC was looking for just an incident like that (laughs) as an excuse to get him off the air. I remember watching that game. I watched that game live. And I I remember when he said that. And, you know, I was probably 14 years old. And I thought right away when he said it, he's done. I cannot, yeah. ble- I cannot believe he said it. And then I remember in the second half where he was denying that he had said it. And he was, he was insistent. He was adamant that he had said nothing offensive. And, you know, for, for all this, you know, random white kid in Minnesota knew, it's, I mean, that was, it was clear that Howard, Howard was done. Oh, I think, you know, it, it was funny. Um, you know, uh, Gifford in the interview said he remembers when he said it. 
and just you know feeling like ice water was going through his face. Oh yeah, I, I watched <laughs> you know? the I watched the clip again while reading your book, and and Gifford, you could tell he's just there's this awkward pause, and Gifford does not know how to respond. Yeah, yeah. So you know that was really it, and and he did come back. He did I think uh, the '84 Olympics. He did the um, boxing um, for that, but you know that was really the end. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask about Cosell's efforts in, in the 1980s to define his own career. He, he writes another autobiography. So, so as his career was coming to a close as he's leaving broadcasting, how did he view his contribution to sports and to, and to TV and radio? He was so disillusioned that I think he, um, he had lost kind of perspective. I, I, um, you know, what I, there's a really interesting oral history interview that I found that was, that's at the New York Public Library, and it was done in 1981, and the interviewer asked him, what is your legacy? And he said, in 10 years, no one will remember who I was. And he said, you know, fame is fleeting. So um, I, I think that he be, had become so bitter, I don't know if he really, on one level, recognized the, you know, the contributions he had made. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I think if he, you know, thought about it at all, I think he would, he, he would, the things he was always most proud of and he would stand up and speak about were um, his defense of Ali and his defense of, of civil rights in the 1960s. Um, you know, that those were principal things that he had done. Now, you know, one thing I should mention, and this is something I, I skipped over about Cosell, early, early in his career in the 1950s, it, he, uh, you know, I had said that he wanted to get involved maybe in entertainment and just in anything. And one piece of evidence I have for that is that he was uh, the counsel for something called the Television Writers of America, which was a, a union of, or what, really the first union of television writers, but it was one that had an association with being really far left, and in fact, there was somebody who was, um, the West Coast was split into East Coast and West Coast divisions, and the West Coast leader was um, put in front of HUAC, and she had in fact been a member of the Communist Party for a brief time period in the 1930s. And he apparently advised the East Coast um, Union to resign when she decided to plead the fifth before HUAC. So it, it's interesting that, you know, um, you know, early in his career, he really, I think, you know, his, his principles were there, but, you know, at certain times in his career, and certain times they abandoned him, yeah, um, you yeah. know, because he, uh, he was not a fan of the witch hunts in uh, the McCarthy era, but on the other hand, he... He kind of caved in at a certain point too. Yeah, yeah. That was one instance in, in reading that to see he was uh, he he was so ambitious. Yeah, and so driven. Absolutely, and that 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 you know, like every anyone else, you know, your ambition sometimes conflicts with your principles, and that was you know a human element of of Cosell. I think that was very true. Yeah, talking about the human element, one of the things in in. The, the last chapter where you look at his uh, his later years, it's it's actually quite a, a sad story of looking at Cosell as a person in his yeah. uh, in his last years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he um, was in severely declining health. It's interesting, you know. He really wasn't that old when he died. I'm I'm trying to think. I think he was about seventy seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but he was in in you know terrible health. Was really very much alone. His two daughters, who were taking care of him, I think felt like he had been um, maligned so much in the media. They really protected him. But one of the you know, downsides of that is I think he was very isolated um, and, uh, and, and died very much alone. And, you know, you, you had asked earlier about um, his wife, Emmy. She died uh, in 1990, I believe, or 1991. And really after she died, that everyone who knew him said that was almost the... the most devastating blow that he experienced. He was so, you know, tied to her that um, with her gone, it was very difficult for him to, to hang on. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about uh, the assessment you make of Cosell at the at the end of the book. In your in your conclusion, you talk about how when when you listen to clips of what Cosell said on the air in the 1960s and the 1970s, even up to the early 80s when he was. Uh, open in condemning boxing and and yeah. you say in the book that it's jolting to listen uh-huh. to to Cosell. So why why is it jolting? Why did Cosell stand out and why does he continue to stand out? 
I think it's jolting that he was able to get away with making those kinds of critiques. You know, I, he had a, a depth to him that, um, you know, if there are other sports broadcasters that have that kind of depth today, they don't let it come out mm-hmm. as much. You know, I think, you know, you have uh, some people like a, uh, uh, Brian Gumbel or, or Bob Costas that are in, certainly intelligent sports broadcasters. Um, you know, they, he had he really had an intellectual depth to him, um, whether you liked him or not, or whether you agreed with him or not. And that is jolting, I think, to to see. Um, you know, he, he he was very well educated. Um, you know, it, kind of, it comes out of I think even once again his background, growing up in the New York City public school system, where I I think when I hear that described to me today, you know, not just in Cosell's case, but just hearing about it historically. I mean, it felt like if you got a high school degree in New York City, it was like getting a college degree today. Mm-hmm. Um, you were very well read, very well versed, and and he he really um, he really was. And I think that his critiques were so sharp, so articulated, uh, and so well thought out that I it it really is is uh, hard to believe that's a sports broadcaster that mm-hmm. you're listening to. Mm-hmm. So I'll ask you, John, what are you working on now? Well, uh, right now I'm kind of uh, between projects, but uh, <laughs> I say euphemistically. But um, I'm, I'm writing something actually uh, for a book um, that uh, David Wiggins is putting together, who's a, a sports historian at George Mason, and he's done great work on race and sports. And, I'm, and he's putting together a book on D.C. sports, uh, Washington, D.C., and I'm doing a chapter on bicycle racing in Washington, D.C., so uh, that dates back to, I guess, my own um, experiences at one time in my life as a bicycle messenger in Washington, D.C. Hmm. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on the program. I enjoyed I enjoyed reading this book as someone like you who uh, who grew up listening to and, and watching Cosell. And uh, I went to YouTube many times to look up to look up clips while I was while I was reading the book. So that's thanks. a great thing about YouTube. Yeah, absolutely. You can go back, and I would encourage anybody who is listening to this that doesn't remember Cosell, you know, go back and look at him, and uh, and you'll see what we're talking about. You've been listening to an interview with John Bloom about his book, There You Have It, The Life, Legacy, and Legend of Howard Cosell, published in 2010 by the University of Massachusetts Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from language to law. If you like what you heard here, please friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can offer your comments and find links to thoughtful, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.